Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast, where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impacts people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and this month we're going to explore one of the key issues at the root of the tsunami of fraudulent unemployment claims prompted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The level of benefit fraud has gone from truly unprecedented to simply staggering. In mid-2020, the Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Labor told Congress that stolen unemployment benefits could reach $26 billion. And that was before the state of California warned benefit fraud had already exceeded $11 billion just in that state. This past weekend, officials now estimate the amount of fraud to be in excess of $60 billion. This is just one piece of a bigger identity-related fraud puzzle, though. Complaints to the Federal Trade Commission about identity-related fraud more than doubled in 2020, with government credential and benefit fraud topping the list. What's the common denominator here? Automated and manual processes that are used to prove we are who we say we are. ID verification and validation is a bedrock principle of our technology-driven world, and professional cyber criminals have largely figured out how to get around the common identity-proofing techniques. In some cases, well-meaning state officials even pulled the goalie last year by relaxing verification standards to speed benefits to people impacted by the pandemic who desperately needed the help. There is good news to be found when it comes to identity verification, Private companies and government agencies are rapidly moving away from traditional ID proofing to more modern, secure, and accurate ways of proving you are who you claim to be. Joining us today to talk about these issues is the ITRC CEO, Eva Velasquez, and Blake Hall, the founder and CEO of ID.me, one of the leading identity verification companies. Thanks to both of you for being here today. Thank you, James. Happy to be here. Thanks, James. Well, let's start with you, Eva. What happened in 2020 when it comes to identity-related fraud? I know that's a softball question. It's a long, slow pitch right over the plate. But what really happened with identity fraud last year? Well, and you touched on it in your intro. It's that it's this staggering increase and the numbers skyrocketed and the complaints to the FTC doubled. But let's consider that, you know, we didn't start at a baseline of zero. It's, you know, it's not like they had 200 complaints and wow, they doubled to 400. We are, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of new victims that are reporting to the FTC. And it wasn't just the uh, increase in victimization rates, which we're seeing, but it was also in the dollar losses. Now, it went from people reported losses of 3.3 billion in 2020. These are individual losses. I'm not talking about the impact to the government, which I know we're going to cover with with Blake. We're talking about individual consumer dollar losses of 3.3 billion. That's an increase of 1.5 billion in just a year. So not only are we looking at these astronomical losses to our systems, to our government agencies, but even individuals are losing tremendous amounts of money. And that's fraud in general. And then when we look at the unemployment benefits fraud, 
and uh, the misuse of those credentials, we're looking at almost a 3,000% increase in the number of cases reported to the FTC. And we had a similar experience at the ITRC, where we had 19 calls on the issue in 2019. And in the last calendar year now, we've had well over 1,000 calls. So it is just an unprecedented level of fraud. Blake, I know you've you've seen this from a, a little bit different perspective, but let's level set for everybody. What when we say identity verification, we say traditionally. Talk to us about what we have done historically to prove that somebody is who they claim to be, and and how that how well that worked or didn't work uh, <laughs> last year. Sure. So you know the the market. It really has been dominated by credit bureaus and data brokers who try to use data and questions to verify that you are who you're claiming to be. And the problem is that um, in many cases, that toothpaste is out of the tube, so to speak. When you look at the Equifax breach, Anthem Healthcare breach, the fact that your mortgage information is available on Zillow, Google Street View can show attackers you know, what kind of car is parked in your driveway, and they can back out your car payment. We see that organized crime is able to go through what's what's traditionally called knowledge-based authentication, the questions and answers about your mortgage payment and your address history. Uh, it's not even really a speed bump to these attackers and these crime rings. Um, so NIST, which is part of the Department of Commerce, has set standards that said, look, like records validation is fine to say like an identity exists, but it's not fine to say that this is the actual owner of that identity. So think about name, date of birth, and social as like an address in a phone book. Um, it's fine if that's public, but just because you know somebody's address doesn't mean you own the house. And the way that you actually prove that you're the owner of the identity is that you have to have possession of a phone uh, where the telecom will corroborate that you are the subscriber that's paying the bills on that phone. And as a former uh, Army infantry officer that hunted terrorists using signal intelligence, there is nothing more powerful than the smart computer in your pocket that talks to a network every eight seconds. So possession of phone is a critical tool to verify that you are who you're claiming to be. Possession of a government ID is also very important. So do you have a driver's license or a state ID or a passport? And then biometric matching of your face to the photo on the government ID. So the market has moved away from data to to possession and biometric-based methods of verification. And what's cool is you can actually increase access uh, for eligible folks because uh, a lot of people in this country don't have credit history. You know, if you're less affluent, which tends to be correlated with being a minority, if you're a woman who's changed her name after marriage, which women have a higher propensity to change their name in our society, you are more likely to be listed inaccurately in records. So some of these things like that are phone and utility based um, and that are uh, document based significantly increase access for eligible folks that have been precluded from it because of over-reliance on credit history while also preventing fraud. I want to come back to that in just a second, but Eva, you know, given what we just you know heard from Blake there, I mean, that, that there's so much information out there, which we know from our, our data breach work and how that is used by organized criminals, which is not something we have really thought much about historically, that how well organized they are. What is it that individuals can and should be doing to protect their identity? 
I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I know we have a mix of listeners. So we have a lot of thought leaders and business leaders who like to get into the weeds. And then we actually have a fair number of, of just consumers that just want to educate themselves. So for you guys, you don't have to understand all the details of what Blake just said. <laughs> it's don't get overwhelmed and don't be scared. There are little things that you can do that will prevent you from being the low-hanging fruit because that is one of the things that even these fraud rings like. They like it easy. They like the low-hanging fruit. And so, and the notion, yes, yes, there are so many breaches. Yes, so many of our identity credentials have been exposed. But I, I really tell people, don't throw up your hands and think there's nothing I can do because not all of your data has been exposed to every threat actor out there. So the awareness of, Keeping this these this information close to the vest and not oversharing it is still a good best practice. Um, you know, just because you you believe that your information has been compromised, please don't put a billboard up in front of your house with your name, date of birth, social security number, uh, mother's maiden name, all of those things. And and then do some of the little things using a, a unique password on all of your accounts, a different one for each of your accounts. I know it can be hard to, to remember, but that is a really important step. And the other one is multi-factor authentication. Um, that can help for even if credentials have been compromised and, and a username and a, and a password, we do consider those credentials at this point. They are a part of your, your digital identity. Um, having multi-factor authentication turned on on those accounts can help to keep the criminals out if that information is compromised and allow you the time to change that password. So there's my my advice really, really quick. Um, there is a lot more. So I encourage people to come to the ITRC and look up the rest of those tips. Blake, let's get build now just on what Eva was talking about. There are steps individuals can and should be taking. As we move from this as you've referred to it as, you know, more of a, of a credit or a credit header, the, the, the knowledge-based authentication world into something that basically um, is either device-centric or behavior-centric or location-centric and, and or all of the above. How does that advice change? How do individuals sort of structure what they do and how they do it to take into account I'm going to have to do something different to prove that I'm me so I continue to have the conveniences that I'm used to. Well, uh, the way that we think about it is is really like make identity verification as accessible as possible. And so that's where, you know, we're like, don't don't have it just be based on financial records. Let's have it based on identity documents like we prove our identity in person is with our face and with our government ID. And if you can open that up, you significantly expand access. And then the second thing is, you know, why are all these different applications in the login identity business um, as well? Like it's not sustainable for Americans to create a new password that's unique at every single website you go to. And so a big part of our mission is uh, IDME's service works kind of like PayPal for identity, that you can verify your identity and attach it to a login that's protected by multi-factor authentication um, at one government agency and then have single sign-on you know, to social security or to VA or to treasury and the IRS where we'll be, you know, uh, debuting soon so that you only need to verify who you are once. And then it becomes really important to keep that credential secure. And the analogy is very similar, like going to the DMV. You only go to the DMV to prove your identity once, 
And then making sure you don't lose your driver's license becomes really important. But that driver's license kind of lubricates all these different transactions where you need trust. Like it helps you board an airplane. It helps you check into a hotel. It helps you prove that you're over 21 when you're buying alcohol, which we've probably all done a little bit more of over this last year. And so, um, so like that's, that's our digital model for identity is like make the hard part of identity verification a one-time deal and then really focus on protecting that account from takeover so that you can make strong identity uh, easier and more convenient for individuals, just like PayPal and Visa streamline payments. So you don't have to pay with cash everywhere you go. How would what we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, but the, this, this staggering amount of benefit fraud, and, and, and that was just on, on unemployment. There's other benefit fraud as well. There was there was a stimulus fraud. There's the small business loan fraud, all this related to pandemic. And as Eva said, that's on top of just your garden variety fraud that happens every year anyway. If, if this kind of system you're describing were in place, how would things have been different? Well, the country would have saved hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, that estimate that was ticked off, it's still way low. Uh, you know, every state where we screened pools of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of claims, the fraud rate has consistently been over 50% of the claims that are being paid on are fraudulent. Oh, good God. <laughs> that is staggering. So when you look at like $600 billion that's been distributed across every state that we've now you know, we come in and we're like, look, your baseline, 30% of your new claims are fraudulent that we're knocking down. 10% of it's social engineering. The other 20% is like breach stolen data that we're blocking on the telecom check and, you know, facial liveness and things like that. Um, and that's even before you get into eligibility fraud. Like what we're, what we're finding now is that uh, there are individuals who are applying with their own identity in like multiple states and they're not super smart because like the IRS and law enforcement is eventually going to knock on their door and be like, Hey, like, why did you apply in like four or five different States? And that's going to be a, a tough conversation for them to have. Uh, but a lot of the States still aren't integrated into a hub that they can use to share information. Uh, but we're in, um, we're in 15 States now, six more under contract, nine more coming on top of that. So 30 States, well over 80% of America's population. So it's all the big ones except for Ohio, Illinois, in Michigan, and we're seeing individuals, you know, commit even uh, what we would call first first party fraud or eligibility fraud. So that thirty percent is baseline, and that's just identity issues. Eligibility issues like prisoners applying where they are who they're claiming to be, but they're clearly not eligible. The multi state fraud I just talked about uh, that's going to stack on top of the identity verification fraud. So you know, it it really is crazy when you take a fifty percent fraud rate out of $600 billion plus in benefits, you end up with a number that's closer to $300 billion in fraud. And, and I'm, I'm confident the country has at least lost $200 billion uh, to criminals at, the, at this point just over the last year. My jaw was already sore from when it smacked the ground when I heard $60 billion. I'm, go- I'm going to need surgery now. Um, Eva, I, I almost, you know, I'm, 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 my mind is reeling, but I think that it really does beg the question, what is available to help these people? Because that $300 billion, um, or $200 billion or whatever the number actually winds up being, there is behind a significant portion of that somebody who needed a benefit but couldn't get it because somebody stole it first. What can we do to help those people? Well, clearly, James, and my mind is also reeling. So um, 
you have sufficiently shocked both of us. And I think we've been in this space long enough to almost say we've heard it all, but that is just, that is mind blowing. Um, and, you know, as far as the people who are affected, I do think it's important to remember that, yeah, we're talking about credentials and data and these fraud losses that are going to impact us, impact the states, and then, and therefore all of us eventually. But there are a lot of people who desperately need to get these benefits. And my hope is that more resources at the, at the state level, just for, for lack of a better word, for customer service. Um, hopefully, Blake, now that they are, are deploying your strategy, they will have some more resources to actually talk to the people who need their help, who need to get these complaints. They need to get their legitimate applications in. They need to file these fraud complaints so that they can start to have that investigated and unwound. Because in addition to the pain they're feeling right now, we are starting to see in our call center this new batch, because there's going to be a very long tail on this fraud, this new batch of people who didn't know. These are the folks that actually didn't have a legitimate need for those unemployment benefits. So they didn't know that they were applied for using their credentials. They're starting to get 1099s from those states. And it's going to impact um, you know, their, their tax filings, the folks who are retired that are on social security, it could impact their income. It could be, uh, you know, either, uh, the amount decreased that they're getting or stopped altogether. If there was, you know, that more of that fraud, if the amount of money that came in was more than what allows them to be eligible for social security benefits. So, um, I'm hoping that the states put more resources, make more resources available to people. And then in the meantime, we are encouraging people to just reach out and contact the other resources that are available. Of course, there's us, there's ITRC, there's the Federal Trade Commission. Um, several of the state's AG's offices are have set up um, additional support at some of the counties. So it, it does depend on where you live, but by all means, seek out that assistance because, you know, to the earlier point about individual consumers, you don't have to memorize all of this and become an expert in this area. You just need to know where to go to a trusted organization and entity to get your questions answered. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Blake, I'm going to wrap up here with um, a question around uh, where do we go from here? Because, I, you know, KBAs were state-of-the-art 15 years ago, um, and the bad guys figured out how to get around it. Eventually, they'll figure out how to get around some of these, these newer techniques. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, so where are we going? And I also want to uh, ask you to view that through the lens of privacy. Because mm -hmm. our privacy laws today tend to be built around data. So as we move to these new kinds of authentication, what does that, what does that mean for privacy? So, you know, I, I think two things. I'll start with a quote from General McChrystal, uh, who really transformed the way that we fought insurgents in Iraq when I was over there, which is that it takes a network to defeat a network. And right now, we do not have a network of good guys. We've got these monolithic, centralized, slow-moving bureaucratic processes. And in much the same way that the American army was getting our tail handed to us in 2005, 2006, like you have to delegate trust and autonomy to the edge. It's your, your small unit leaders that win uh, these wars. And, and the same is true for information sharing. Like 
we have to have clearing houses for whole government approach where the states, federal government, the FBI, Department of Labor, everyone gets on the same page. And then you also have this agency that is out there in the federal government, NIST, that all they do is literally come up with the standards to prevent situations like this. And even for other stuff, like making sure that the laser on your DVD player doesn't punch all the way through, but like is just enough. I mean, this is all they do. So um, just when you're going to distribute $600 billion in benefits, you know, make sure that there's adequate cybersecurity funding and tooling available for these states. Because right now, we only cost a few dollars, whereas like the loss per identity to taxpayers is like 20000 bucks, And so that should be a pretty clear like return on investment. That's a no-brainer, if you will. Uh, but yet the states are kind of left to their own devices and they're being like, well, I'll use, I'll use you guys for like my really high-risk ones. And we're just watching them on the dark web get owned. And it it sucks as an American to see that. Um, and to see, you know, like this, this network of, um, of attackers who are really, who are really coming after us. So we, we really need to adapt our practices, um, in terms of a network of good guys to better respond to it. And, uh, and I think if, if we do that, the country, you know, will be way better off when it comes to privacy, you know, our stance is that, um, to each his own, like we all have different conceptions of privacy. So there is, there is no, like big brother or big sister definition of privacy that will work. It's really like what's appropriate for you and under what context are you willing to like share your information? Um, again, like we align to the, the NIST privacy framework. And in our model, we do a few things. Like when an application registers to ask you for your data, we minimize the data that it can ask you for. So if a website needs to know that you're over 21, it can't ask for your actual date of birth. It can only ask that you're over 21 or not, Right. So there are privacy filters in a digital context where like an ID card that's static, like a young woman has to show her address to a bouncer every time she proves that she's over 21 to go into a bar. That's not a great model for privacy. So one of the things that digital credentials can do is actually say, hey, like bouncer at the bar, like you really only need to know the face and the claim that this person's over 21. You don't need to know their address or actual date of birth so that, you know, maybe if you're a bad actor, you know, you can't misuse that information. The second thing that we do is we make sure that each individual has the ability to review every single element that's being sent over prior to its release um, and that they explicitly give consent. So a lot of these social media networks will opt you into everything and then they'll be like, hey, go to this page. It's like buried under like seven or eight different clicks to then like change this dashboard that you can't decipher. In our model, it's like, no, 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 like your, your data is your own. Our, our stance is like Visa. Visa doesn't sell your money. Visa sells trust and convenience. This is your information, your data. If you want to move it, we're going to monetize the trust and convenience, but it's up to you to decide if your personal data moves you know, from us to a third-party app. Um, and then the final thing is that uh, many of the things that are mandated in GDPR and now California Consumer Privacy Act, Understanding which app has what elements of your data, we have a dashboard that lets people see that and they can revoke ongoing use. They can also destroy their IDME login and associated data at any time in a very simple way. Um, and those are things that are now being mandated by law, but we built into our product from inception because we really believe in a consumer-controlled model for identity, where your identity shouldn't belong to your employer or to your bank, which often like your most trusted logins today aren't portable for that exact reason. You leave your job, 
your login gets shut down and like, you know, tough luck. Like you've proven your identity, your bank. Great. Like it can't go anywhere else, you know, because it's kind of a moat around their business. We really want to democratize people's data. And the final thing I'll say is that as an American, you know, China is the definition of a surveillance state where they've taken physical activity, your digital activity, like on uh, WeChat and Tencent, and then also combine it with identity. And we view those things as like ghostbusters, like don't cross those streams that, you know, we will verify what's true about you, but, you know, and we'll help you get like a, a room key to check into MGM. So you don't have to wait in line in, in Vegas for an hour. So you get an hour of your life back. MGM saves some money on staffing. Great. What you do within your room, your gambling activities, what movies you watch, who comes to your room, that should always be completely partitioned away from the identity provider. Um, and that's kind of why Facebook is creepy when they come in as this enormous digital app that sees all your messaging and your friends, and then they try to be the single sign-on too. That's what we call a voyeur state, where like the digital application layer and the identity utility layer are converging. And and you know we just don't think that should ever happen. There's that scene at the end of Batman: A Dark Knight where Alfred says to Batman or to Bruce Wayne, like nobody should ha ever have this power as he's watching all the cell phone traffic on the wall. And that's what we feel like too. There should be deliberate partitioning between the identity and credential layer and the digital application layer and also the physical activity layer. Because if you combine all three of them, you have a real Orwellian threat to democracy. Eva, Blake, thank you for, um, I could have a very colorful way of describing this, but I'll just leave it at, thank you for scaring us today. Um, <laughs> uh, but also thank you for, for you know, uh, your, your comments there at the end, which are very thought provoking. And it clearly is uh, time for us to move to a consent-based identity strain, uh, uh, framework, a uh, consent-based privacy framework, um, and a consent-based technology framework. Those things, when they are consent-based, that's what's going to make us more secure, and that's what's going to make uh, the biggest changes in this kind of fraud that we, we've seen. So thank you both for uh, your, your thoughts today. Thank you, James. James. You can learn more about the identity-related crimes and how to protect yourself from identity fraud and compromises by visiting the ITRC's website at idtheftcenter.org. Be sure to join us next week for our weekly Breach Breakdown podcast and next month for another episode of The Fraudian Slip. Thanks for listening.